Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome to CBS Audio's Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Phil Briggs. I'm a Navy veteran, and every week I get a chance to look at the issues of the day through the eyes of my fellow military vets. Now, sometimes we get a military veteran expert in here to talk about the issues in the news, And other times, we'll talk about the issues that uniquely affect veterans. But I tell you, every episode will bring you fascinating guests with incredible stories to share. My goal every week is simple. Bring you something informative and something that will inspire the hell out of you. This is the news and stories about the veteran lifestyle. This is Eye on Veterans. Many of us have enjoyed a shortened holiday week because of Thanksgiving. And because of the rise of the amount of COVID cases throughout the country, many Americans opted against the large family gatherings. But earlier this week, I had a chance to speak with two veterans, both medical experts, who share some important and almost frightening things to remember about any family get-togethers that we're considering during this holiday season. Dr. Mark Cordepeter is a retired Army colonel, physician, scientist, and biodefense expert. And he's also the author of the book Inside the Hot Zone, an account of life inside the Biowarfare Defense Lab at Fort Detrick, Maryland. I recently spoke with him about COVID as it relates to Thanksgiving and the upcoming holiday get-togethers that we're all thinking about. Dr. Cordepeter, good to talk to you again. How are you? Doing well. Thanks, Phil. Great. Happy to talk. Man, I thought that when we spoke this summer, that might be the last time. I thought, you know, you'll give me your advice on my summer vacation and by fall, certainly, you know, by Thanksgiving, you know, we'll we'll have this figured out. I was wrong, wasn't I? Well, certainly, Phil, I think we're definitely in a a very different place than we were last summer. I think when we talked, you were talking about going to the beach and things seem to be cooling off, uh, as they often do with uh, respiratory viruses in the summers, but obviously now... We have a totally different situation as we've seen uh, 
you know, cases skyrocketing really all across the country. And we're seeing a lot of community spread. Yeah, and it's to that I wanted your expertise. Here we're talking about a holiday season where we're looking at going inside. Is the risk of being with our relatives who are untested and could be asymptomatic, is that risk real? Yes, it is, Phil. I think that the challenge is that there are a fair number of people who are asymptomatic or maybe they may be pre-symptomatic or maybe even they were symptomatic or starting to get better who may be shedding the virus. So it's really a case of where you don't really know who's actually contagious and they may just look normal. And, and so there is this risk as we start coming indoors more, we're a little more crowded. And I think there is a natural tendency to let our guard down because they are family. But that doesn't mean um, we can let our guard down. It, we really have to be vigilant, I think, uh, because there is the risk for spread. And the other thing to think about is that we have people, you know, when they get together with, for the holidays, they're all coming in from different places and they like to have large gatherings. Well, that's, that's a real challenge because as we've seen and as we've talked about before, this is one of those things where if you do let your guard down, if you let the brakes up, the virus just has a natural tendency to find those susceptible individuals and essentially spread. So that's where the risk is. Now, before we get into steps we can take to mitigate it at home, I kind of want to look at the 30,000-foot view. And I remember when we spoke last, it seemed like in these major urban areas, especially New York and the Pacific Northwest where it had popped up, it was spreading. And it would make sense that, you know, from wherever it emanated from in a big city, it's quickly moved and gets around because it's on touch points. It gets on key register pads and handrails and elevator buttons and, and, and things of that nature where a lot of people are sharing the same space and touching the same surfaces. But then I get to this kind of like era we're in now, months later, and it seems to be popping up in like South Dakota and Idaho and Arizona and all these places that were not on the beaten path as I originally understood the virus lived. How is it that something goes from major urban areas to these rural areas? And how is it pathogens and viruses spread, even though we might not be talking about touch points here because there's disinfectants that we're using on everything these days? Sure. Well, there's... You know, certainly the possibility that there are uh, contaminated surfaces, especially high-touch surfaces. If someone, you know, blows their nose and then they go touch this handle, then the next person comes along and touches it. And then they, they touch and rub their eye or, you know, or rub their nose. That's how you can have direct uh, transference of the virus. But certainly uh, it is a respiratory virus. So if you are in close contact with others and they are symptomatic, even if they're just talking or, or singing or you know, coughing, those are the ways you get infected uh, through the respiratory route. I think that the challenge is when you have, and we've talked about this a little before, when you have something like this where no one, at least in the baseline level of the population, no one has immunity. So it's like giving the virus a highway without toll roads. It will go wherever there are susceptibles. And it, it happens really one person at a time, or as we, you know, as the other risk, of course, is where there are large gatherings. Even if you're outside and you're not wearing a mask, uh, that is also a risk because you're right next to people. If people are shouting or yelling or singing or even just talking, you know, one on one, if there are large gatherings, there, for example, there was this one, I think it was a large motorcycle rally in one of the Dakotas. 
you know, where they thought 500,000 people might have been infected as a result of that. So all those people, they come together, but then they disperse to all their local communities, and then the spread goes on and on from there. And so, you know, it seems like essentially there's a certain number of people on average that get infected from every infected person. And as this goes along, no place in the United States is essentially uh free from this, that every place can be affected. And it just goes through these person-to-person transmissions. And as we look at that, I recall the graphics I've even seen on evening newscasts, a sneeze cloud or a cough cloud. And they showed this graphic that I just thought was sensationalist. And I tend to be a little bit skeptical every time I see some of this news stuff, because I know we're in the business of selling information. And I know I need you to click on my stories in order to, you know, be a success. So I thought for a moment they were hyping it when they said someone could sneeze in one aisle and it would carry over four more aisles. And I thought, how likely is it that I'm going to get a sneeze cloud from three aisles over? I mean, the shelves are 12 feet high. Um, is that a real thing? Is, is is someone just speaking into the air, as you'd mentioned, singing Christmas carols, getting together laughing? Uncle Ned makes a funny one and we all bust out laughing when his hairpiece falls off. Are these the things that can create clouds of aerosol that can spread around the room? Yeah, well, it, there's a, been a lot of work trying to look at this scientifically. And I think that the, the simple answer is the biggest risk is really those who are in fairly close proximity. Because you're getting, you know, you are getting a large cloud of this. And, you know, the particles over time will degrade in the environment. So it's really those people who are very close. and But this is why we talk about wearing masks, right? Because if the person wearing the mask coughs, they're going to significantly reduce the amount of particles that actually get into the air. And then if the other person's also wearing a mask, they've reduced the amount of particles that they're inhaling. So really all you're trying to do, it's really all about risk reduction. It's not to say that you can't potentially get infected by someone across the room versus someone right next to you, but it's just a way to try to reduce that risk. There's no, absolutely no risk other than, you know, just not around anybody and you're holed up in the middle of nowhere. Uh, if you're going to be out interacting with people, there always is going to be this risk. And, and you know, it's all about trying to figure out the ways to reduce that risk. And, and frankly, in some ways, I think those of us feel like, you know, we're, we're a broken record, you know, the social distance, wear a mask and, and wash your hands or use hand sanitizer. But really those are, fundamentally are the core of what people can do themselves it doesn't they don't need anybody else helping them with that and those are the things to think about as they come together if they come together over the holidays so you're of the opinion that it would be a wise move maybe even to consider wearing a mask at the family function when you're near your relatives yeah so this is uh, something to think about in the context of family gatherings. And I've got some thoughts here, just general thoughts about if people are going to come together for Thanksgiving. First of all, if you can keep the people at your Thanksgiving table, those who you're already interacting with on a daily basis in your household, that's preferable, right? Then you don't have anybody from the outside coming in. Um, If you're thinking about traveling to go see others, the first, the easiest answer is don't travel. You can avoid it. Um, But then the other thing is you could potentially get tested before you go. Think about who's at greatest risk. Are there people in your family or or whoever you're thinking of getting together with with who have underlying illnesses like hypertension, diabetes, 
heart disease, obesity, immune compromise for whatever reason. These are the post- folks at highest risk for complications or severe disease. So think about are there things you can do to try to protect them where they're you know not necessarily interfacing with the whole family. And then, you know, really, I think the other thing to consider is holding gatherings with fewer people. So maybe normally you get together with family, you know, five families come together, 25 people or something. Think about maybe smaller gatherings, maybe just two families, and then you, you talk to the other ones by Zoom. So you, nobody's completely left out. Um, but there, there are other things people can do, too. I think if they are gathering to try to minimize the risk of even things like, uh, you know, cross-contamination, you know, whether they use um, disposable utensils. Um, you talked about wearing a mask. Do you wear a mask when you're all together? Well, what I would say is if you wear a mask when you're together, if there's a way you can eat in shifts, because obviously you can't eat with a mask on. So can you eat in shifts or separate yourselves while you're eating and then put your mask back on and then have a conversation after you've eaten? So there are various things you can do that way. Um, try to minimize the crowds of people gathered in the kitchen making the food. And then if you if you are in an environment where you can be outdoors, try to spend some of that time outdoors, leave the windows open to try to get some fresh air in there. All right, that's some great advice for the family get-togethers. And I agree, being outside, you know, an awesome idea. We're going to tr- experiment with some of that in my own house this year too, you know, using using the back deck as an actual seating space for people so we're not all stuck in the same room. And um, I want to talk a little bit about the testing, it seems like a lot of people, I know my family included, we waited in a really long line this week to ensure that we were not asymptomatic, to ensure we did not have this virus because we know we we're going to see some. Is that something you advise? And what's the second order effect of all these tests? It would seem with all these tests that we're seeing a massive spike in the positivity rate in America. Is that to be explained because so many people are, in fact, getting their pre-holiday testing done? Well, certainly, um, if more people are getting tested, you're probably going to get more positives. I think the key thing is, the important thing to look at is, you know, this this infectious disease, like many infectious diseases, has, uh, you know, some individuals who have more severe illness and some with less severe illness. I think the, the bottom line is, the positivity rate is really just a marker of what's going on with the spread within the country. And I think as more people get tested, it's going to kind of lay bare how many people out there have really been spreading this that we really weren't aware of. So the key thing is the real marker that you have to look at, in addition to just overall positivity, is in a given area, are you seeing the percent of individuals who are being tested out of the total is that percent of individuals that are positive increasing? That tells you that there is more spread going on. It's not just people getting tested. These are actually being tested now being positive, which means there's more people in the community spreading it. The concern I have when I see the rates of positivity increasing is this is not rocket science, you know. And I think infectious disease doctors and public health folks like myself, we know what follows. It's basic math that determines this. If you have more cases, not all of them are going to be really sick, but some will. So those people then who are sicker are going to go have to be hospitalized, which then leads to eventually some of those people will die. And as you get more people hospitalized, you're overwhelming your medical system. 
And so then you get even a second order effect that that more of these individuals are going to die if they can't get the adequate care because they need a lot of care. And then the other people who have other things totally different from COVID can't get the care they need. So they may have repercussions from that. So really, it's sort of a cascade of issues that occur. More cases leads to more hospitalizations, leads to more deaths, and other second-order effects. The bottom line is we want to knock down these levels as best we can. And I, I, even, I even wrote an article for Forbes as a contributor to their front lines not too long ago, and I said, why is, Ebola, why is COVID more deadly than Ebola? Well, the answer is Ebola actually you know, kills like 60% of the people who get infected. COVID, we're talking, you know, 1% or maybe even less die. But with simple math, the more cases you get of COVID, we're talking millions of cases across the world, even if the percent of death is lower, you're going to multiply that out by the number of cases. And that's why you get more deaths. And so ultimately, we want to knock down the cases and therefore reduce the later order effects of death. And the data proves this out. We're seeing across the country rise, you know, hospitalizations and rises in deaths. And we'll see more of that going forward in the next couple of weeks and months. Wow. Interesting comparison to Ebola. Um, can I ask with your experience where this ranks in America as compared to things like the swine flu or the bird flu or the whatever flus we've had in the past? Does this rank as deadlier? Well, um, it's probably uh, slightly deadlier than normal influenza it's certainly the thing is though uh the, the amount of the numbers we're seeing is much higher than you normally see uh you know every now and then we do get very large pandemics of flu but i think this one is unique in, in terms of the numbers and the second order effects yeah. we always worry about something like this with a novel influenza strain uh, and obviously something like you know the, the swine variant we had in 2009 was not nearly as bad as this yeah, so it's it's uh, it's certainly having a huge effect. So I guess it's safe to say, though, that uh, it is a good idea to get tested, or is that something that's going to overwhelm our system as well? Well, I think if you're planning on seeing others over the holidays and you don't have a way to do it uh, in a more safe manner in terms of distancing, masks, etc., it's one you know it's like a Swiss cheese model. You're trying to hit this thing in multiple different you know multiple different holes and block some of the holes. Uh, and so I think testing is one thing you can do to try to reduce risk of spread to others. So, and it, you know, your local community, you'll have to see in terms of what the long lines are and things like that. Mm. The bottom line is if you need a test, you probably should go out and get it. Yeah. And of course, you'd rather have a long line at the testing site than a long line in the ICU. And that certainly makes a hell of a sure. lot of sense. Yeah. Dr. Mark Hortepeter, sure. always appreciate talking to you. You're, I always say when I talk to you, your two cents spends like a dollar with me, man, because it's, it's great advice. And thank you for helping me kind of sort through and sort of play into some of the rumors and the myths here. We've actually talked about a lot of comparisons here, and we've talked about a lot of the fundamentals that some people have just disputed or plain didn't want to hear, and uh, you always break it down very clean, man. So, Dr. Mark Hortepeter, thank you so much. Thanks, Phil, and you have a nice holiday. Take care.
All right, as we continue our conversation about the coronavirus, our next guest is Dr. David Calloway, and he's a professor of emergency medicine down in North Carolina. He's also the chief medical officer for Team Rubicon and, like myself, a proud Navy veteran. Dr. Calloway, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate the time. I was super glad to reach out to you because uh, through a mutual friend, I found out that I could talk to somebody on Team Rubicon, which is something we've covered here at Connecting Vets. Uh, you know, for years, you guys do some great work and uh, just really serves as an example of what veterans can do as we continue to serve. But speaking of service, I saw a Navy veteran. Where'd you serve? Yeah, I went on active duty July 1st of 2001 and uh, did a year at the hospital in San Diego and then after 9-11, I left my training and went out with 3rd Marines for three years. And so I was in Kuwait, and Iraq, Burma, El Salvador, kind of hopping around uh, in the early days of, uh, of Operation Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom. Nice. Always good to hang out with the Marines. Although I imagine... Yes. <laughs> always good. They, they always had your back. <laughs> of course, I imagine that even if there is no combat to speak of, you're still fixing Marines because they love to, you know, wrestle and end up in fights. Oh, I loved hanging with my Marine buddies. Yeah, jar, jarheads are uh, never sort of entertainment and uh, and uh, requirement for a doctor in their midst. <laughs> to save them from themselves, right? All right. Uh, let me see. After that, you worked with as the chief medical officer with Team Rubicon. Tell me a little bit about where you've served with them. Yeah, I joined Team Rubicon in, in 2015 uh, to, to help build out some of their international medical capability um, and, and have deployed down to Dominica uh, after, after the hurricane a couple years ago, have, have helped run some of the operations uh, in Mozambique and Greece, uh, Nepal, and then I uh, spent a little time with our team down in Guatemala doing uh, what we call disaster risk reduction, so working with the U.S. Navy and the, and the Guatemalan uh, disaster response experts uh, for their government, uh, building out some capacity in the north. Very cool. And on an international level, it sounds a very similar or like a parallel to what we're experiencing right now within our own country, and that we are amidst a disaster that is this COVID-19, the era of the coronavirus. And I'll have to tell you about it because you're an ER doctor. Um, what are you seeing right now in your area as far as hospitalization in the North Carolina area? Uh, are there enough beds in hospitals, or are we now looking at maybe entering a phase where we're going to use a triage areas like stadiums? Yeah, it's a great question. We, you know, what, what I like to say is uh, we, uh, we did the smart stuff early on. We fought hard, and we were beating back uh, COVID, and then, and then people got fatigued, and, and we got uh, a little bit um, complacent, and, and we're seeing the, the consequences of that nationally right now. If you look at the spread of, of everything from cases to hospitalizations to death, it started in the Midwest and then like an ink blot is spread out to the coast. We've been pretty fortunate in North Carolina. Um, we, we've had some good uh, partnerships between the government, between our health systems, our businesses, and then groups like Team Rubicon. So, you know, we have, uh, we've seen increases. Um, we are we are straining our systems, but we've, we've put a lot of lessons learned from the last eight months in place, and we're still taking care of people in really effective ways, you know, I'm hoping, I know field hospitals are popping back up and I was involved in, in planning some of our field hospitals back in March. I'm hoping that with some innovation and some, some new ways of caring for people, we're able to keep people at home, provide them care remotely. We're able to scale some of the way that we do our work here. And then, and then certainly when the vaccine comes out in the next couple of months, we're able to put that in play to, to help this recovery. As you've seen it, though, just in this last week, we weren't or you weren't, say, on a shift where there just were too many patients for the amount of beds ever, were you? I don't know. If, I don't know if I can answer that question. Uh, 
what, what, what I can tell you, I, I, I worked two shifts in the ER this week. And what I will tell you is that we are seeing uh, lots and lots of sick people and probably as many really sick people with, with COVID as we did early on. And then we're also seeing people who had COVID a month ago who are coming back in with a new pneumonia or coming back in with trouble breathing or some complication after they've recovered. So it, it's still a big, fat deal. Mm. Um, I, I know that uh, people are tired of, of this fight, but, you know, we got we got to keep swinging. We got to keep doing the smart stuff. Like wearing masks, washing our hands, and, and staying physically distanced because they, there are people who are really sick. And it's not just the elderly and it's not just the people in nursing homes. We're seeing young people two months out who still, you know, can't breathe like they used to be able to breathe. So we, we got to get a hold of this. That's really interesting about the boomerang of patients that are coming back. I haven't heard as much on that. And the reason why I maybe ask you for kind of a specific vision from your vantage point is only because, you know, I, I work in the media. And what's cool about the conversation you and I are having just right now is that we're both vets. Like, we can pretty much shoot straight with each other. We don't have to bull each other. Uh, I see in the media sometimes this, like tendency to want to hyperventilate or salivate over you know if it bleeds it leads right i mean the old adage so sometimes i think some people are like trying to uh, i don't know defend themselves or filter the information they get through that bs detector and they often wonder is it just being hyped and that example you just gave right there clear accurate and i really appreciate you sharing that um i wanted to just touch on really quick with respect to how people are viewing this information we're getting um there's a huge spike that's going on, a resurgence of this. And you'd said it yourself, like kind of emanating from maybe the Midwest and, and then pouring back out towards the coasts now again. Um, what's behind it? I mean, are people really still catching this via the air now in rural areas? Because like trucks and trailers and commerce have all come from the big cities and dropped their goods off at the stores and the Walmarts and the whatnot in the rural areas. And then that air just got shared. And now people are like breathing the sneeze clouds and the cough clouds that came from travelers that were in other infected areas? Yeah, Bill, if only it were that complex. It's actually really simple. We're seeing a spread because people aren't wearing masks. We're seeing a spread because people are going out to eat inside restaurants with people who they haven't quarantined with, and they're spreading the disease. They're getting together in big groups, uh, and they're not wearing masks, and they're spreading the coronavirus. And basically what happens is, as you get more people who are infected, you start to see this exponential explosion of more cases because there are more people who are sick out there, and each one's infecting more than one person. And so as you click along, at some point you go from this linear increase to the exponential increase. And that's what we're seeing right now. And it is solely because people are not physically distancing and they're not wearing masks. And if we, we know that if we do this, we keep this disease under control because we saw that over the summer. That's what people were doing. Now, less, less uh, percentages of people are dying because we're getting better at treating it. But overall, more numbers of people are dying because more people are getting sick because we're not doing the simple stuff right. You can't go and shoot a machine gun without going to the range first, you know, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, 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 it, it's yeah. basic stuff, man. It's change your socks, change your boots, look out for each other. You know, it, it's very common. You can't, do the good, you can't do the complex stuff if you can't do the simple stuff. Hmm. Crazy that it is that simple and that yet we failed maybe after we didn't keep everything sort of in place over the summer. Uh, let's also talk weird numbers. You kind of referenced it there earlier. You know, we're looking at the national numbers and they're huge as far as positivity, but then the death rate doesn't seem quite as high. However, any death is one too many. 
Um, but I wanted to take a peek real quick with you just so I can get my head around it. I was watching the news crawl the other day and it said like 11 million some people in America have the virus. And then I looked and it said the deaths were a quarter million people. Again, astonishing, disgusting number, hate that number. But as I remembered back, I remember going on my summer vacation and like July, I think we were around 200,000. So we have this exponential increase of positive cases, but yet the death rate is still only about 50,000 more than it was several months ago. Does that mean that this is not as lethal or, or, or am I looking at those numbers wrong? So Phil, it's a, so it's a good question. And this is why people should go to trusted sites like the CDC to, to get their data. Mm-hmm. So what, what we know is that hospitalizations and deaths lag increases in number of cases by about two to three weeks, right? So we start to see increased numbers of cases and then the, the mortality or the number of people that die, people usually die two, three weeks, four weeks into their course, sometimes a little sooner, but usually a couple weeks into the course. And so you won't see the increased uh, total percents and numbers of deaths exactly in line with the increased number of cases. There's usually a delay. And so what, what they expect and what they're projecting out of the CDC and other groups is we're going to start seeing these uh, escalations in percentages of death and numbers of deaths you know, probably in the next one to two weeks, we'll start seeing those numbers go up uh, more dramatically. Thank you for the filter on the math, because, you know, that's always the water cooler ar- argument I get or like the folks I see on Facebook. You know, they'll put up a graphic and be like, well, look, man, just do the math. Ain't that bad. Um, let me look. Yeah. At my, I mean, but, so, Phil, this, if, I, if I could just like comment on this. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> so coronavirus isn't Ebola. It doesn't kill 35 or 40 percent of people. OK, that's true. The fact is that it kills, you know, two to three percent is the total mortality. But that number in and of itself is not the true number as well, because like I told you, we're seeing young people. My neighbor has a kid who's a marathoner, right? He's a 24-year-old D110 player marathoner. He got COVID. It's now six weeks later, and he can't run a mile. He has no other medical problems. So he doesn't get counted in those numbers because he didn't die, right? He was a survivor. But now he can't go and exercise. And so his life is dramatically impacted. And this is, this is really the hidden story here is everyone who says, ah, not that many people are dying. They don't know people who are not being able to go back to work because they can't breathe. People are having, you know, uh, subacute strokes because of coronavirus. And, you know, they, they, they can't go back to work. They can't go take care of their kids. They're not popping up on the death list. And so people need to take this seriously. It's no joke. It's killing people. And we own the ability to stop it. Wear a mask, physically distance, wash your hands. That is some easy, easy stuff. Make your mama proud. Do the easy stuff. Save a life. You're right, 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 right. Um, last question regarding math is just when I looked at my own state numbers recently, uh, Maryland is where I live. 2,000-some uh, cases uh, were new in a single day. There were 19 new deaths. Uh, they're talking about the total cases. An astronomical number, by the way, for my small state, 174,000 people have reported that they've tested positive over the course of this. Um, and then there's this number next to it called the positivity rate. And what I didn't understand by looking at that news graphic was it said Maryland's positivity rate recently was 7.19%. 7.9% of what? Is that 7.9% of the population of Maryland? No. So it's it's a great question. So there, there are three widely reported numbers. One is the, the total number positive, right? And that's the 11 million. The other is, well, sorry, let me rephrase that. There are four numbers widely reported. The total number of positive, that's the 11 million. The total number of hospitalizations, total number of deaths. And then this fourth one, which you just brought up, which is percent positive. 
So the percent positive is the number, uh, the, the number who are positive of all the people you test. And why that's important is because um, the more people you test, you obviously will, will find more positives. So you want to know is, is that disease prevalence in the community changing? So if you test a million people, so if you test uh, 100,000 people uh, and the percent positive is 5%, and then you test a million people and the percent positive is 5%, that's good. That means you have you have consistent control, and it does it means that you're not seeing more people positive because you did more tests. If you test 100,000, it's five percent. You test a million, and, and now it's 14 percent positive. That means not only are you getting more positive because you did more tests, but the disease is spreading in the population because a greater percentage of people are infected. Mm, okay, I'm glad that you was can... a long answer. Sorry, man. Did that make sense? No, it totally did. And and believe me, I'm one of the smarter former E4s you'll ever talk to. Uh... No, I'm just, well, I, just, <laughs> I didn't explain it very well. No, I was dialed in the whole time, and I get it. And I'm glad you compared it to the national number as well, because people always think, you know, well, they're just testing more. Of course, they're going to find more cases, man. Well, the proportion, that percentage positive, right. is an important number because that doesn't fluctuate. That is, it's a true reflection whether you're looking at a sample size of a hundred thousand or a million. It is the percentage of the people that got tested that had the virus. Exactly. Damn. And why that's important is because the WHO and the CDC say that if your percent positive is less than 5%, um, that's where you want to be because that means that you have good public health measures uh, in place and that you can start controlling the virus. When it starts getting above 5% and then certainly above 10%, that means that uh, the virus is totally out of control. Now, I want to use that number as we look at some real-world-like activities here. We're looking at the holidays, and whether it's Thanksgiving or whether it's Christmas or it's get-togethers throughout the season, you know, a lot of us might want to travel to go see Grandma, Grandpa, over the river, through the woods, however the hell we get there. Um, and then there's this positivity rate. Should we be looking for a magic number when we look at our destinations? The answer is that's part of it. So if you, the CDC, again, is a great great page for determining risk of travel. And, and one of it is, one of the items is, what is the, what is the percent positivity rate where you're going? Um, the other is, you know, what are your individual and your family members' risk factors? So if you're a college kid and you're going to see uh, your grandparents, um, you're coming from a high-risk population, college kids, and then you're going to a population that has high consequences if they get sick, your grandparents, it's probably not smart to do it. Um, and then, likewise, if you're going into or coming from a place with a high uh, positivity rate, that increases your risk. So, yeah, that, that's one of the factors. The other, you know, have to do with how are you going to travel? Are you going to be on a plane, which we know is higher risk uh, just by going through the airport and being around more people? Or are you going to drive? Um, when you go to be with your family, is it mostly people who have been uh, together throughout the whole pandemic? Or are you bringing in a bunch of people from different parts of the country? Anytime you add more variability increase the risk mm. and again should we be looking for a like a, a destination that has say under seven percent under five percent is there something to do with that number that that makes sense when gauging where we go yeah i mean the the, the best place is under five percent but um again what what i would say is as you get above five percent this, this is all this is all about risk management phil yeah yeah. And yeah. so if you, if you get above five percent you're increasing risk if, if you get more people you're increasing risk. If you're doing something inside, you're increasing risk. If anyone's not wearing masks, you're increasing risk. And so what I, what I recommend is, uh, number one, you know, especially from veterans, right? We've all missed our share of, of Christmases and birthdays, and we know it sucks. 
probably more than anybody in the world, we know how much missing a holiday sucks. So number one is what, what is the value of, of this particular holiday at this particular time in your life? So you only, only people can make that decision. Is it the last time you're going to be around grandma? Maybe it's worth it. If you know, so individual decision on, on how valuable this, this holiday is, then what is your risk and what are the risks of the people you're going to be around? You're going to feel awfully bad. If you come from a high risk population, you carry COVID to your family and, you know, Aunt Bessie, Uncle Jim and, and Grandma die because you give them COVID. So understanding your risk and your family's risk. And then number three is understanding your willingness to, to put the protective measures in place. So is everyone willing to wear a mask? Are you willing to eat outside? Are you willing to generally be six feet away from each other? If you do all of those things, you know, you can decrease risk and, and we can reasonably get together. If you can't, then then you need to reassess what you're doing. And as I said with a previous guest on the same podcast, I was like, you know what? Maybe this is an opportunity to consider using a different space of your home. You know, using the deck, maybe throwing up some tents if you can. Find some portable heaters, create some exterior ventilation. But, I mean, do something like that so you're not all cramming into the kitchen at the exact same time. And uh, also, this might be an opportunity for you to get that relative that has the big house that's cheap and never invites you over. <laughs> Maybe you have yeah. to go to their yeah. house yeah. this Get year. them to pony up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. And, right like, also, like, you know, or if you're able to work from home and quarantine for two weeks prior to the trip and then get a test or, you know, before you drive down, there, there are all kinds of options. And depending on where you're coming from in the country, yeah. you know, there's more or less availability of tests. So n- none of these things is a fail-safe, but, but all of them together can decrease your risk and, and allow you to get together if it's a really important event. Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll just I'll, – I'll, I'll then stop there and just say the CDC recommends not traveling for Thanksgiving. <laughs> that was something I was going to add is that that advice has already been made and that is you should stay where you are and not go see people. Yeah. But uh, And I totally, I support the CDC recommendation uh, of of limiting travel during Thanksgiving and, and not traveling if you, if you don't feel it's absolutely necessary. That is far and away the smartest thing to do. It's the best thing for your family and it's definitely the best thing for the community. Mm-hmm. And last question, and I know I've taken up so much of your time. I really appreciate it. want to squeeze this one in, though, really quick. Uh, as far as testing, I've noticed a lot of people, my family included, recently, uh, you know, we waited in a very long line, a very long drive through line with the kids. And let me tell you, that was fun. A four- and a nine-year-old yeah. inside of a minivan yeah. for over two hours. Um, <laughs> but we waited in line because of his school, and we were afraid there might have been a contact or there might have been, you know, an, some sort of an exposure point there. So we went and did our due diligence, and we waited in that line and got tested. Are all tests equal? Is the one you give in the hospital the same as I got at the drive-thru, or is the drugstore test lesser than that one? I mean, where are we with tests? Yeah, so there, there are a bunch of different tests out there, but broadly it's the, the real-time PCR test is the most reliable, and there are a bunch of different versions of that. And then there's the antigen test, which is a little bit different, but that's one of the rapid tests. Um, so the, the, every state has multiple different options for testing. None of them are 100%. Um, all the ones that exist right now are pretty good. Um, so just from a testing standpoint, you know, the, the tests are pretty good right now. We've expanded access, and that's great. So what the question of whether you should get tested or not um, is a little bit more nuanced. So remember, when you get tested, all that means is you don't – if it's negative, it means you don't have the, the coronavirus at the moment you were tested. And so um, you could still be infected – but it hasn't uh, hasn't um, gotten to the point where the test can actually pick it up. And so you you could be infected uh, yesterday, take a test today, and you're negative. Uh, and then two days or three days from now, you start showing symptoms. 
So that test only tells you one moment in time. Mm. So, so where it's helpful is if you're going to travel and you haven't been around anyone for two weeks or a week and a half um, and you get a negative test, then the likelihood is you don't have it, right? Yeah. You haven't been around anyone for, for 10 to 14 days. You take a test, you're negative, you're fine. If you've been hanging out, partying, um, and then you go take a test and you're negative, that, that, doesn't, really, that doesn't really help much. So the, the same thing is with exposures. We see this all the time. You know, uh, someone comes in, they say, my, my kid had an exposure yesterday. We want to test. Well, the test today is not going to be positive. Um, and it's not really going to tell you anything because you need to get a test, you know, within the period of being able to detect the virus. So earliest two days after exposure, um, and, and usually it's more like five, six, seven days after the exposure. That makes sense because that's what we were told to do is wait about seven days before you go get your test. Uh, and yeah, and, the, and yeah. really the only value in that, Phil, is if you if you need to get the test because you need to go out and be around other people, then it's worth it. Otherwise, you just stay in your quarantine bubble for 14 days, um, and, and that's fine. So it becomes an operational decision about what you do with your life, not a medical issue. Because if you're not having symptoms, it doesn't really matter if you're tested positive or negative from a medical standpoint. Um, it just matters in terms of what activities you decide to do because you shouldn't. If you're positive, you shouldn't be going out and roaming around the, the community, even with a mask and washing hands. Well, I appreciate all this—a deep dive into what seems like a cup of common sense, but there are some nuances in these numbers. And I thank you so much for uh, helping me get my head around it. And uh, as a former Navy veteran, I know you shoot straight, man. So thank you very much, shipmate. Dr. David Calloway, professor of emergency medicine and doctor down there in North Carolina. Be safe, my friend, and enjoy your quarantine bubble. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Phil. Appreciate the time and uh, be safe. Have a good Thanksgiving. Thanks for your service. All right, so that does it for this week's show. Thank you for listening. Now, we'd love to hear from you, so follow us on Twitter at IonVeterans, or you can reach me at PhilBriggsVet. I'm always down to get your hot takes and spicy memes, and I'd love to talk to you every week, so please like and subscribe. Hell, even give us a review of the show, because the comments and reviews really help us tailor the show to you. Again, I'm Phil Briggs, Navy veteran and reporter with ConnectingVets.com in Washington, D.C. And I look forward to talking to you again on another episode of CBS Audio's Eye on Veterans. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. 
Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Deviadaris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. 